You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, and I'm glad to be with you today for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 7.50 a.m. We start this week with a highlight from Catholic Chicago. New York Times bestselling author Mark Shriver joined co-hosts Father Greg Sakowitz and Mark Teresi to talk about his new book. From the New York Times bestselling author Mark Shriver comes 10 Hidden Heroes, an exciting seek and find book with a message featuring everyday heroes at home and in our neighborhoods. This vibrantly illustrated book helps children develop counting skills and learn how they too can be heroes in day-to-day life. Mark Shriver is president of Save the Children Action Network in Washington, D.C. He's the author of Pilgrimage, My Search for Pope Francis, the New York Times bestselling memoir, A Good Man Rediscovering My Father, Sergeant Shriver, which received a 2013 Christopher Award. Mark, welcome to the program this morning. How are you? I'm great, thank you, Father. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, Mark, were you raised in the Washington, D.C. area? Yes, yes. I, uh, we, uh, I was born in, uh, in Maryland and uh, raised in Maryland, you know, just uh, 20 minutes outside of uh, downtown D.C. Now, were We're you? actually, uh, speaking of the warm weather, it was 72 degrees here yesterday. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to snow next week here as well. So we got, uh, <laughs> you, I guess we have that in common with Chicago. You'll get our weather. And now, being from the out east, there, you would follow what football team as a child? Uh, the it's now called the Washington Football Team. In the old days, it was called the Redskins. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, and then uh, you know the Baltimore Colts are thirty miles away, but everybody around here was uh, Redskins fans or Washington Football Team fans. Now this is Mark Teresi and. I think I. Uh, no, your parents were in Chicago for a while, were, were they not? Yes, my mom and dad uh, were in Chicago in the fifties. Uh, my father came east in uh, nineteen sixty to work for President Kennedy. Started the Peace Corps, but my dad was the uh, president of the Chicago uh, School Board. Uh, he ran the Merchandise Mart, and uh, my three older siblings were all born in Chicago. Now, Mark, so you're gonna, now, Mark, you're going to love this, Mark has a story to share with you that he told me right before the program. Mark shared with Mark. So you can tell your sister Maria this story. So I was baptized at St. Clement's, and when I worked at the seminary, a Father Mariano Vida gave us a gift. I called him. I said, you know, Father Mariano, you baptized me at St. Clement's. He said, and, and that was years and years before. And he said, I said, uh, he said to me, Yeah, I remember that. I said, how do you remember my baptism? Well, he said, because I was scheduled for the baptism right before yours, and Cardinal Stritch called and said, I will take that baptism. I said, well, who's baptized right before me? (laughs) Maria Shriver. So your sister, so I was known for who I was not. (laughs) Um, But I thought, what a neat story. What a neat story. Now, that would have been what, 1955? 1955. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good one. I uh, I know that uh, I know of Cardinal Stretch and uh, I know of his work in there. And my father, 
uh, was very involved in the Catholic Interracial Council in Chicago and did a lot of work uh, with Cardinal Stritch, who, you know, um, uh, unsegregated or desegregated, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, or integrated, I I guess is the right term, excuse me, uh, the Catholic schools and the Catholic hospitals in Chicago. So which means, um, Mark, you would, you would have been there the day of the baptism for Maria at St. Clemens. No, he's younger. I oh, think. no, you, that was nineteen fifty. Yeah, I'm younger. Maria's about seven years older than Got me, it. but okay. I'm uh, doing a Zoom call with her tonight, so I'll tell her that story. That's Please a great story. <laughs> tell us. Well, first of all, Mark, tell us how the book Ten Hidden Heroes came about. Well, you know, I, the two books I, I wrote, uh, one on my father and one on uh, Pope Francis, and really, you know, spent so much time trying to focus on what makes someone good, what makes, um, you know, as compared to great, because some of these folks that are great, you know, that are uh, celebrated in our society for having money or power or, or um, you know, prestige, celebrity, uh, doesn't make them a good person. Um, and I just uh, thought that when, especially as COVID started rolling out, so many people were talking about the essential heroes, the essential workers in our society. And I you know, believe that we ought to be holding those people up as examples of goodness, of decency, of humility, um, and, and other hidden heroes uh, on a day-in and day-out basis. So this book is really... It's like, where's Waldo? But instead of finding Waldo, we're trying to find the hidden heroes. Your kids are trying to find the hidden heroes, um, whether they're doing environmental work, whether they're doing work in the home, whether they're doing, you know, helping folks out in, in medical care. So we celebrate, and you know, the, some of the hidden heroes are nurses and doctors, but they're also the custodian in the hospital who make sure the rooms are clean, who does a lot of the work behind the scenes, you know, the people who... Uh, pick up the the recycling and the people who compost. I mean, these are small gestures. What Pope Francis talks about, you know, the hidden saints next door who, through little acts of love, are changing history. I really believe that's true. Their little acts can make a big difference. So, Pope Francis, your dad, essential workers, what are some of the qualities that all three of those possess that you see? Well, I think, you know, I think the first thing is is a sense of humility, um, is a sense of understanding that we're all equal. Um, you know, I think uh, the folks that I admire the most, um, you know, in my house growing up, my mom started Special Olympics, and it really yes. was, uh, you know, started in Chicago. It was the first international games at Soldier Field in 1968. Uh, Judge Burke, um, you know, played a huge role in that as well, and Burke out there in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my mother and father used to always say that the heroes were Special Olympics athletes and their parents who were, um, you know, <clears throat> perform, you know, a, uh, doing athletic activities, training every day without making a lot of money, without a lot of acclaim, and that they were doing the small things well. Um, so I think it's a sense of humility. I think it's a sense of doing what's right even when no one is looking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my father treated everybody um, with respect, whether they were Cardinal Stritch or the you know waitress at his favorite uh, restaurant, and boy, and, that, died, and now that is a wonderful gift to sure treat is. both equally and not because of one's title or position to cater to. Now that is a wonderful gift. In your own life, looking back in your childhood, who were the hidden heroes in your life? Exclude family, but I remember that like in my own life, there was a neighbor down the street. His name was George. I was about six, seven, eight years old. He was the kindest man, you know, he was about 70, or 70 years old, which I thought he was beyond dead by way of age, but he was so kind, 
and always helping the neighbors. And that in my life, he became, for me, a hero. Who were some of the heroes when you were a boy growing up? Well, it's a great question. And, um, you know, in, in our um, life, um, <clears throat> there were folks in and out of our house. You know, my father started the Peace Corps. There were Peace Corps volunteers in and out of there and people who had worked in the Peace Corps with my father and my mother. Um, you know, had started Special Olympics, so there were Special Olympics athletes um, that were in and out of our house. My mother had a lot of, uh, you know, friends that had developmental disabilities. Uh, you know, Goldie, who helped her out, uh, was a friend uh, and, you know, colleague who, um, you know, showed up every day for work and had a developmental disability. She was fantastic, um, you know, and... It was people like uh, the the parents of Special Olympics athletes, as I mentioned a little bit ago. Um, you know, it, it, there were folks that were in and out, but that we knew uh, cared deeply about their community, cared about their children. And, and you have to remember in the early 70s and, and into the 70s, and, and still today, people with developmental disabilities are isolated. They're forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, those parents had to had to work hard and still do today to include their children in school, uh, to allow their adult children to live on their own, to have, to have jobs. Um, so those are the folks that were always held up in our house and that I always admired uh, for doing great work. And in the book, Ten Hidden Heroes, this book we're talking about, uh, you know, there are, there's a page about people with Special Olympics uh, with, that are in Special Olympics. And a couple years ago, I was at the International Games in the United Arab Emirates. And um, Abu Dhabi, and you know, a country that doesn't recognize Israel. Uh, at the international games, the Israeli athletes marched in uh, with the athletes from the UAE, from Egypt, from all around the United States, all around the world. And um, you know, they got a standing ovation. And mm. there is a, a part of the they're they're one of the hidden heroes. They're arm, the athletes from Israel are arm in arm with the athlete from the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and. I'm hoping that that people will realize that the Special Olympics athletes are leaders and heroes in their own right, that they can show us that what unites us is so much more there than what divides us, um, and that they can, through these gestures of sports, in this case, show us how to to, to really be human with each other. Um, so, and so that's really the, the folks that I admire mm-hmm. most. Um, you know, on a personal basis as well, the, you know, the, the athletes, you know, I had great admiration for Rocky Blyer, who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, who sure. went to Vietnam to represent his country, fought back against injuries. I mean, he you know, was well-known at that point in time, but he wasn't the star of those Pittsburgh Steelers teams. You know, that was I think he wore number Bradshaw. 20. He, I, I cannot remember. I know he went to Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. uh, Rocky you know, Blair, growing up as a kid, you always rooted for Notre Dame. But sure. I think the, the point was is that he wasn't a big shot and you know, had done the small things, uh, had worked very, very hard. And that's what this book is about. It's about people who are doing um, small gestures to keep the community whole, that are working hard, that don't get a lot of recognition, don't get paid a lot of money, but that they're examples of what real heroes do. So on a personal note, Mark, our youngest is uh, special needs, special Olympian. We have a, a, a rack in our home with all of her gold medals. So Congratulations. A, well, a special thank you to you and your family for all that you've done. Uh, to, to what does she compete? What does she compete in? Oh, you name it. She competes in um, 
the parallel bar. She competes in the basketball. She competes. You name the sport, and uh, she she did down. Well, she's quite a little athlete. Yeah, she did uh, downhill skiing, and her picture was uh, on the front page of the Des Moines Register as one of the Olympians. So, uh, congratulations! From, That's yeah, fantastic. From, from my heart to you, thank you so much. You know, it's just. And I don't know if you're familiar. She just became a resident at Misericordia here. Oh yeah. And um, yeah. Sister yeah. Rosemary's one of those hit. She's not no. as hidden now, but, but she's, she's a, a hero. There's a hit. There's a, a mercy nun who had a vision, uh, uh, caring for uh, special needs. Special. Yes. No. I I know their their work. Um, you know, the, my last uh, uh, travel plan to actually was at Old St. Pat, celebrating the good work that goes on at that church. <laughs> Uh, and I definitely know Ms. Accordia. Congratulations to your daughter. Thank you so much. Um, it's, it's 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 efforts like you know, as you just mentioned, sister. There, um, you know, not getting a lot of recognition. Maybe some, but you know, definitely not what she deserves. But she does the good work day in and day out. And your daughter is is showing us all about grit and determination. Um, you know, when you talk about being a gymnast and a skier and a basketball player, I think, gosh, I got to get off my fanny here. And <laughs> she's leading, she, right? I mean, she, seriously, she's leading. She yeah. got those talents from her mother, not from me. And I, I will attest to that. <laughs> Our days in the seminary, I will attest to that, Mark. Now, I had one other school. question, and maybe I don't know if we have time now or we'll take a little break and come back. Uh, take uh, a break. Take okay, a break. Let's take a little break. And the question I'll have. Mark, for you, is as you look at the book, Ten Hidden Heroes, how can it be utilized in schools, in parishes? Uh, it just sounds to me like the kind of book that talks about spirituality. Well, it is published uh, you know, by Loyola Press, uh, which is out in Chicago. Uh, I think they did a beautiful job with the book, and they were a great team to work with. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic operation, Loyola Press. Um, and I'm hoping... You know, the book is, is really based on Jesus' call to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, uh, shelter the homeless, visit those in prison, um, you know, which is very closely aligned with uh, Isaiah as well. And, you know, the great religions call us to um, love our neighbor. Um, and, you know, Jesus' call is, is clear to uh, Catholics and, and to everyone. And I'm hopeful that people look at it and a couple of grandparents have told me they've read it with their children, and, and when the kids ask them, you know, why is a, a child in a wheelchair who's in a road race a hero, they have to explain why somebody who's physically handicapped can be a, a hero. And it's so it's really somebody asked me, is, you know, is this for ages four to eight? And I said, yes, it is, but it's also for, you know, readers of all ages. So I'm hopeful that it gets into kindergarten classrooms and into Montessori programs and into the first couple of grades, but I'm hopeful that you know people of all ages share the book. Now, Mark, um, two quick two quick questions. One is, if someone wants to get a copy of the book, Loyola Press, and uh, is there? A, I presume the the website would be. It's it's sold everywhere. It's sold everywhere. I mean, it's on Amazon. Oh, okay. You know, it got up to the number eighty five book in the world on Amazon last weekend. Oh, uh, it's, Congratulations! You know, Barnes and Noble, Walmart dot com sells it. Uh, you know, the bookstall up in uh, suburban Chicago has it. Uh, so it's everywhere. So um, again, for our listeners, ten hidden heroes by Mark Shriver, Loyola Press. Uh, the other question is, look in your own life, Mark. And I get the big, big impression. Well, I know about you. That is, uh, faith 
is very important in your journey of life. Has it been that way since childhood? Has it just grown deeper as you've grown older? I mean, I think the relationship has, has gotten deeper as I've gotten older, but, you know, we were altar boys at 645 Mass at Holy Cross, you know, church in Tacoma Park, and my dad used to take us over there. <clears throat> so, and he and my mom both went to Mass on a daily basis, and I mean every day, whether they were in Washington, D.C. or traveling anywhere around the world, the first question whenever they checked into a hotel room was, Where's the church? You know, where, where's the church? What's the Mass schedule? Um, so, you know, that... that uh, example of someone who you know went to mass every day, who kneeled every day and asked for help and uh, forgiveness and guidance. You know, it was very powerful as a kid. And um, you know, I went to I was educated by the Jesuits in high school. Went to Holy Cross College, uh, which is a Jesuit school in Massachusetts, mm-hmm. with with a lot of uh, folks from Chicago. Actually, went to went to Ignatius and Loyola. So I know Chicago uh, and and those guys coming out of uh, Catholic schools. Um, are still great friends of mine, and that relationship, I hope, with God is deepened every day. Uh, but the Jesuit call to see God in all things and to, you know, be a man and woman for and with others is, is a very strong part. I hope it's a strong part of me. I struggle with it. I don't do it very well, but I try. Um, and that's what the book is about. It's trying to see God think, in all um, people. struggling is part of the journey with God. You know, Thank you. I hope you're right. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm banking my life on that one. <laughs> so am I. So am I. <laughs> no, Mark, and also, I, I always tell people, if you doubt your faith at times, it makes you human. And there's nothing wrong with that, because in doubting, we come to a stronger conviction. And, and also, you, can, you can't separate life from faith or faith from life. And I'll be honest with you, when I went through high school, I didn't want to go to church. Mm-hmm. I went through a phrase, phrase in freshman, sophomore, junior in Notre Dame and Niles, not too far from Level Academy. I did not want to go to church. It bored me. I got nothing out of it. And by my senior year in Notre Dame, I turned on a scholarship in radio and TV to Northwestern to want to be a priest. So I do believe in miracles. <laughs> we see wow. it every day. <laughs> I had one, one last question, Mark. Anything in, what's your next big project? Anything that you kind of want to reveal to us? I wish I, uh, I mean, it, it comes, I don't know how it comes, actually. Uh, the idea, you know, came when I met with some folks at Loyola Press, Joanne uh, Cicerelli, the publisher out there, talked to me um, about a book that I worked on uh, with my great friend and college roommate, who's now a bishop, uh, Bishop Byrne, um, wrote five things, uh, a little book of, uh, of five things uh, for everyday reflections, and um, Father Bishop Byrne I went to high school and college with him, and Joe Allen suggested writing a children's book uh, based on the, my work at Save the Children and my interest in, in that issue. So I don't know what will happen. You know, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The book on Pope yeah. Francis came about yeah. after a talk I gave at Loyola College in, in Maryland. Um, so I don't know. I don't have any plans. I let the Spirit kind of hopefully will tell me where to go. There's uh, a great, there's a great pretty, line from a John Lennon song. Life is what happened while I was making other plans. That's and a good one. It, it, it I forgot very, that line. It, it, it's it's very a great, great line. But we need to bring the program to a close. The segments want to thank in a very special way Mark Shriver, author of 10 Hidden Heroes, presently uh, being sold at uh, every major bookstore through Loyola University Press. Also, the author of Pilgrimage, My Search for Pope Francis, and a memoir of his fa- good man, Rediscovering My Father, Sergeant Shriver. Our thanks to Father Greg, Mark Teresi, and Mark Shriver for that great conversation. 
Our next segment comes from the Catholic Conference Hour, hosted by Bob Gilligan. This month, Bob talked to a human trafficking expert about the link between parental notice of abortion and raising a red flag about trafficking and raising a red flag about trafficking victims. Here's a highlight. Without further ado, let's do this. Let's bring in uh, Mr. Bill Wolf. He is uh, got a resume that can go a mile long. He's an expert on human trafficking. He was uh, was or still is with the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, he was a special advisor for human trafficking. He's worked in the Office of Justice Programs. Uh, he goes. His experience is is long and detailed. And he was also, I think, started his career as a police officer. So he kind of started sort of on the ground and experienced some things that were uh, fairly uh, tragic. And so we want to talk with him about those experiences and others. Mr. Bill, Bill, are you with us? Yes, sir. Good morning. Hey, good morning. It's good to talk with you again. Um, thanks for taking some time this morning. Um, I was just trying to read off some of your resume, but uh, I think I stopped halfway through. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> it's it's kind of a lot. So, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about uh, your experience. Um, as we talked on the phone the other day, so Illinois is facing uh, an effort to repeal our parental notification law. Uh, that law is in effect, and it requires that uh, an adult family member be notified 48 hours before an abortion proceeding. And uh, we would advocate that the law is a good law. Um, but I, I think you approach this. Uh, I mean, it's a parents' rights issue, uh, definitely. Um, but there's also an aspect of this that relates to some of your experiences with human trafficking. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you saw while you were uh, working, um, not only at the White House, but when you were uh, an officer uh, in, I think it was Fairfax, Virginia. Yes, sir. So, yeah, my, my background is, in fact, law enforcement sort of thrust into this world of human trafficking, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, while working uh, gangs. And one of the things that I learned very quickly is, certainly the prevalence of, of human trafficking all across the United States and, uh, you know, and, and as the gangs are involved as well. And Illinois, Chicago in particular, has its fair share of gangs yeah. and, um, and certainly involved in this issue of human trafficking. But when we talk about human trafficking, a lot of it is forced sexual exploitation. And as a result of that, many times uh, victims become pregnant. Uh, it could be from their trafficker. It could be from, uh, shall we call them clients, uh, that are, you know, exploiting them. And the traffickers, because they like to maintain so much control over these individuals, will oftentimes force them to engage in abortion. In fact, uh, one of my victims uh, that I was able to work with, a survivor of trafficking, uh, was forced to have eight abortions over the course of 12 months. Wow. If you could really think about the, yeah. the trauma associated with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we just, we, we relate that to the number of victims that are actually minors and thinking about yeah. how so often these victims are just not identified by frontline professionals, by parents, by, by other folks. You know, what I think one of the most shocking statistics is that uh, I think it's somewhere around 90% of minor victims of, of trafficking are actually living in their own homes and sleeping in their own beds and attending school, uh, at least when we were, we were back in school, um, <laughs> you know, every day. And, and yet parents are missing it. And so really sort of tying all of this together uh, through parental notification um, for, for abortion procedures, it really gives an opportunity for parents to recognize that 
something is going on in their child's life, that, that level of exploitation that may be occurring and allows them the opportunity to intervene. That, that's an excellent synopsis of, of, of the challenge at hand here. Um, the, the other day when we were talking, you told a story, and I was telling my wife this, and I've told probably five people this story. Um, I think you kind of uh, relayed a, a situation where you, uh, I, I think you started talk, talk, uh, touching on that point, is that you had, you had knocked on the door of some parents and, and unfortunately had to break some really heartbreaking news to them about what was going on with their very own child. Yeah, that was certainly a, a very difficult part of my career as a law enforcement officer uh, was was having to do those notifications yeah. to parents and letting them know it's certainly not easy. But I think to your point is one of the most shocking things is when I would knock on the door, um, the, the biggest challenge was just convincing the parent that I knew what I was talking yeah. about because so many parents, they don't want to believe that their child could be caught up in something like that. And again, you know, it, it's all about that notification. Parents can't respond if they don't know. They don't. And so if a child is being forced to uh, have an abortion by a trafficker and there's no parental notification that goes into that, we're just then complicit in the cycle of exploitation. Yeah, that, that's an excellent way of saying it. That's really a tragedy. Um, you know, I think the other thing that was interesting, too, about our conversation the other day was um, I think you had t told us that, you know, people tend to think of this, and I do, too. You know, you, you kind of think of when you think of human trafficking, you think of sort of the white van, you know, and people being like, but but it's really more um, – more uh what's the word i'm looking for um it's not as transparent as that this is something that could be going on sort of like underneath your own roof and not really even know about it absolutely and you know i mean hollywood's put out some great movies sure. uh, around around human trafficking but it's it's hollywood and it's not the reality and i think it's something you know that all of us within our communities need to understand is what trafficking actually looks like yeah, I mentioned minors oftentimes are living in their own homes, sleeping in their own beds, going to school every day. Uh, I didn't know what trafficking was until I learned as a law enforcement officer, and now I see it all the time. In fact, I was boarding a flight uh, back in December of this past year, and just sitting in the gate area in the airport, I identified uh, a trafficking situation. There were really? two minors that were being controlled by an adult boarding a plane headed to Washington, D.C., um, but having seen that, I was able to notify authorities and, and get some intervention there. But otherwise, they would have just passed right through and nobody would have ever noticed. Um, it, it, Mr. Wolf knows that this press conference we're going to have on Monday, um, we're going to have uh, uh, Laura Letterer, who wrote uh, sort of, I guess, the seminal piece on the relationship between um, abortion and human trafficking and the healthcare industry. And I was looking at her recommendations uh, towards the end, and I noticed that one of the things she calls for is for states to enact laws that would require information to be posted about where a victim could get some help. And I think Illinois has done some of that. Um, I noticed, like, because when I take the train or the bus, I see in, in the transit authority the signs, if you're traffic, call this number. And I think I've seen it at a hotel or some things like that. And there's a laundry li – there's a lost list of – uh, locations where the the law requires this information to be posted, but I don't think um, as we define abortion facility is included in that list. I, I, I found that interesting, and I'm wondering if that's been your experience in in, in other states or your work in in Washington. 
Correct. And I think, you know, healthcare facilities in general, uh, you know, this is a this is a key opportunity, right, to really intervene in these right. situations. Um, and and in that type of scenario, we know that a woman that is or a young lady that that is in an abortion clinic is under a great deal of stress and pressure and, and lots of things going on in her head. Uh, these are conversations that we should be having. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and making sure that not only is it, you know, is it an informed decision that they truly understand what they're agreeing to, but at the same time, making sure that if they do need help, this is an opportunity where they could be separated from their trafficker, that we really could intervene and save right. a young life. Right, right. And that's what we're uh, going to probably get home. You, you know, Mr. Wolf, it's going to be interesting. Um, I uh, There was a report that came out here from Human Rights Watch uh, and the American Civil Liberties Union. It was just put out yesterday. And it was their sort of argument that uh, why uh, parental notification should be repealed because it's – I mean I think they're arguing that's just kind of a hindrance to minors and they don't like it. So therefore they shouldn't be under this law and it and it does no good or something like that. I don't know. I haven't read the 77 page. But the Chicago Sun-Times wrote about it this morning. And luckily they called uh, our little uh, coalition that's now being called uh, Parents for the Protection of Young Children for a quote. And I, I – I talked to one of the interv- persons that were interviewed on our side, and she said, you know, I kind of sense the media is really going to push back on this notion that there's trafficking going on in abortion clinics, and they're not going to like it. I wonder if you have any comment about that. Yeah, I think that, well, first of all, I would say there's a lot of inconveniences in life. When I'm running late to a meeting, speed limits are inconveniences, but <laughs> we have to follow them, right? You know, right. there's there's reasons behind that. and. Uh, I think that there is there is a, a broader undercurrent right now within the human trafficking space and just in general to say that it's it's really not a big a problem or we're we're not looking at it the right way. And I really think that that's such an ignorant response to the reality that's happening. I mean, I can tell you as a former a special advisor to the White House on human trafficking, really having that national scope, but certainly from my firsthand experience. Uh, working as a law enforcement officer in the field, that it very much is real. It very much does intersect with uh, with the abortion industry. Um, and, and human trafficking truly is a pro-life issue. And I think it that is. because it's becoming more and more evident that it is a pro-life issue, you're going to have uh, some of these actors that are you know, against that movement as well, start to try to to tamper down our response to human trafficking. I I think you're absolutely right. And uh, they're not going to like that uh, message, but it is reality. Uh, There's individuals like you and and others out there who have experienced this firsthand. Uh, There's people who are writing about it in accredited uh, academic uh, journals. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, that's what we're doing here today. We're going to continue talking about it and um, we're going to keep going until the problem gets addressed at some level, and uh, either it's through a law change or more public awareness. Um, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, couple months here in Illinois as uh, we progress on this issue. So, and I and I and I, we've talked, and and we hope that that you can continue to help us in 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 shedding light on your experience because what you have to say is really really important. Well, I just appreciate the opportunity. I'd really encourage your listeners to to learn more about human trafficking. Uh, a, a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Judy Paparozzi, wrote a fantastic article on why human trafficking is a pro-life issue. Uh, and I just, you know, I think we all need to have a better understanding of 
what it looks like, how it presents itself, and the fact that it is a reality in the United States as well as all over the world. Um, and so we all play a part in combating human trafficking, and it starts with awareness and education. And we'll do that. We'll uh, get a copy of that. We'll post it to our website, and uh, we'll put it on the, uh, the group that we're working with as Parents for the Protection of Young People. Our thanks to Bob Gilligan and Bill Wolf for that timely information. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Our final segment today is a highlight from Mission Matters. Host Megan Mio welcomed a medical missionary of Mary's sister to talk about holistic healing and mission. Let's listen into that conversation. The Medical Missionaries of Mary are an international congregation of women religious that seeks to share Christ's healing love by bringing health services to people of different cultures where the human needs are great. Medical missionaries are serving in 12 countries around the world, and sisters come from 19 countries and are trained in a variety of health-related professions. So, good morning and welcome, Sister Beryl. Good morning, Megan. How are you this morning? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, we're glad that the spring weather has finally arrived, although I we've know. had a few hiccups. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but it is Chicago, so... It's Chicago. Just wait five minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It'll change again. So great. That, so glad to have you with us. Thank you. Um, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Excellent. Uh, I've asked Sister Beryl to join us this month in the hope that as we learn more about the work of the Medical Missionaries of Mary, we can gain some perspective on our situation here as we continue to deal with this pandemic one year on and as we're getting close to the time when a majority of U.S. Americans will have the vaccine. And, you know, the the thing about this pandemic is it has forced us to, to really think about our, ourselves, our own communities here locally, but we also really need to think about the global impact, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. So this is another way for us to think about this pandemic a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I believe Sister Beryl and her medical missionary sisters can help us reflect on what holistic health really means in this context of mission. So let's get started. Sister Beryl, um, let's get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us about your journey as a medical missionary of Mary yourself? Mm, Megan, thank you for asking. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I think I'm one of the luckiest missionaries alive. I I, um, I feel I've had a really wonderful experience. I'm from Buffalo, New York. That's where I'm from. Okay. And I uh, joined the MMMs a long time ago. I'm not so young anymore, but I, in the in the mid-60s, so it's a while now. Okay. Um <clears throat> I joined them sight unseen. They had never met me, and I had never met them. Oh, wow. So it was a pure act of faith to drive from Buffalo to Boston. And here we are, a good few years later. We're mm-hmm. still together. Yeah. So I, I joined then, and I, I joined coming out of Buffalo and the race issue. That was why I joined. I wanted oh, okay. to understand mm-hmm. um, being white and being black. 
Mm-hmm. And I was drawn to the medical missionaries of Mary. So I joined and went to Boston, and that's where I did my formation. Can I ask, how did you first hear about um, this congregation? I pretended that I was doing a report for school on different missionary activities in the church, and I wrote to a whole lot of different congregations. And I got all kinds of responses back. Mm -hmm. I chose the Medical Missionaries of Mary because I got this simple letter from a woman who to this day is my mentor, who simply said to me, I will help you walk to find what God wants for you. That's powerful. I know it. And she was a French speaker. She's from Vermont, French speaker, so she had mistakes in her English. It was wonderful. <clears throat> that's what that's honest. what happened. Mm-hmm. And the funniest thing was, now I'll leave this go because it's just such a funny story. Please. I lived next door to another girl. We were going to separate high schools. She was also deciding to join a congregation. We did not speak about it till a couple months before we entered, but she also joined, chose to join the MMM. She's one of my best friends, and I didn't know it. So the two of us went together. <laughs> and not knowing that the other was also not searching. Not knowing that the other was going. Can you believe it? Anyway, and she stayed. she's a married woman now with grandchildren, but she stayed with us for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. So we shared a lot together through that time. Isn't it the story? I mean, everyone has their story. Everyone has it. Everybody's searching, too. Yeah. You know, and you, want, oh, yeah. you don't want to be alone in that search. No, and, and that's where don't. congregations and communities come in, and, mm-hmm. and families, of course, as well, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for those who are discerning religious life. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, the family is very important in it. Yeah. Yeah. So you said sight unseen. You just had that brief communication um, from your future mentor, um, and then you, you joined. And so were you missioned to, to serve somewhere overseas? I, no, I, I was a young woman. I had only graduated from high school at that time, so I did formation first. I uh, event, did fundraising for a couple years because that is so important for us. As Even as, as soon as we enter, we start doing yes. mission appeals. Okay. So <clears throat> then I, I did nursing at Northeastern University in Boston. Of course, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then um, I went to London to get reciprocity as a nurse so I could get registered as a nurse in any part of Africa. Okay. And then I did midwifery oh. in Ireland. And after that, after about 10 years of studies and formation, I was ready for assignment. Yes. I was going to say, you know, and maybe we'll talk more about this as we go on, but that becoming a medical missionary means you need kind of two different forms of, of education formation, both the medical skills and the, the faith formation. And spiritual. You do. Yeah, you really do. Some people enter with their, their prof- depending on age, they, they might be already professionally trained. Oh. <clears throat> well, you know, everyone is different. Yeah. Everyone is different, but that's what happened to me anyway. So, okay. that, yeah. So yeah. then you you were trained as a nurse, and you were able to serve. Uh, I was a nurse and a midwife, and my first assignment was to Kenya, okay. for two years, really awaiting my um, awaiting my visa for Ethiopia. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I went to Ethiopia as a student nurse for six months. Northeastern is co-op education. I went for six months as a student nurse, um, and I fell in love with Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And when the time came for assignment, I asked, and and I I was it was I was given permission to go to Ethiopia, but it took two years to get a visa. Mm-hmm. So I went to to Kenya first for two years and honed my skills as a midwife, and then went to Ethiopia. Wow. Yeah, Ethiopia is a wonderful country. Mm. Well, and, and you were really committed, you know. You, I'm sure that you enjoyed your time in, in Kenya as well. But I you were did. like You always I had did. eyes on Ethiopia. Yeah. I'm going to go there. I'm going to go there. Well, it's different. You know, it's, it's, um, it's different. 
it's it, it's one of the only African countries that was not colonized. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it has a deep, rich, last a culture, and it has a Christian history from the third century. It's a fascinating country, wow. um, and I loved it. That's what can I say? Loved it, and I was one of the privileged missionaries to be there for both the Civil War, the mm-hmm. Communist Revolution, the Civil War, mm-hmm. and the famines. And uh, was able to be with the people for 15 years through a lot of different things. So, I mean, that that is precious, really. <clears throat> so how many years were you there? In Fifteen. Fifteen. Mm. Wow. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> then you, you, you definitely, um, I, it, from what I'm hearing, and I, I'm no expert, but having spoken to a number of different missionaries over the years, you, you definitely have all the markings of <laughs> a true missionary you, you love your your adopted country your you've you've been through some tough times but it's being with the people and really being present and um and walking with which is what you yeah. were promised at the very yeah. beginning yeah and ethiopia is the kind of country that when you go there the expectation is that you will love it that you will eat the food and relish it that yeah. you will learn the language and that you will adapt yeah. to the country that's the expectation right. that's all i knew yeah so you know that's, so, that's kind of wonderful, isn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that that's true openness. That's true. Yeah. Anyway, uh, it was it was a, that was it. If, and and then followed years in um, leadership, and then um, and then I was asked to go to Honduras to start a mission for us there. Quite <clears throat> a change. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Um, okay. So how many years were you in Honduras? About six. Six years. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I go back every year now, but I. But at, in terms of living there, mm-hmm. I lived there for about six years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then now, now your role today. How did yeah, that my come role. About? My role today is. Um, um, I'm. I'm still in leadership. I've been in and out of leadership a lot in the congregation, which is a blessing because I got to see every country really. Um, so I'm still in leadership, which means I have a certain responsibility to facilitate our life in Honduras, Brazil, and the United States. Okay, we're not a big group, but we, you know, that's where we are, and that's where we're working, so it's, that's, that part of it. And then at the same, and the same time also, I'm our development director, so I'm working with the team here in Chicago, there's four of us, um, another sister and two lay women, and we, we're raising the money to do our work. Mission so appeals. the two things together. You're familiar with that, but, you know. <laughs> I was just going to say, mission appeals are a big piece of oh, that. You mentioned it already. Are. We have wonderful donors. We really do. So, yeah. you know, they really are wonderful. I'm sure you have dedicated donors as well because of all the amazing stories of, of really life-changing work that yeah, the sisters do. Yeah, we'll get been, into there's that. There's people but... from, from all over the United States, certainly from here in Chicago, from Boston, where we started, <laughs> who have been with us, some of them, for 60 years. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, they're really marvelous, really. Anyway, our job is to keep them informed, isn't it? Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. because I think, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, um, things like this pandemic and, and political things and, and other kinds of big big news items, you know, it, it sometimes I think we as, as U.S. Americans, we, we don't see beyond our borders um, often about, and especially what's going on with, on the ground, you know, in communities and families. And so our religious communities that are working around the world can help us see um, our sisters and brothers in faith, you know, and yeah. not just those Yeah, those well, those we're, we're, we're meant, I mean, just we're meant to share our experiences, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Right. <clears throat> see each other as, as human yeah. beings, as, as families, as communities. Um, but we don't hear about it very much. I, actually, I think that's why our mission appeals are as successful as they are. Um, because people are, are hungry 
for those stories, hungry yeah. for the, the passion of our missionaries to speak about, like you said, the, the true love that they have for their adopted I know. countries. I can never, I, in all the years I've, I've done mission peels, almost every year I've been in the United States, of course, um, I've never been at a mission peel that I didn't get something from it as well. I just, that I didn't meet some wonderful people, really. Yeah. Right. Really, I, re- I remember doing the doing ones in the the Cincinnati diocese when I came home from the famine in Ethiopia, mm. and I was a basket case. I was a young woman. I didn't know how to handle a famine, and I went from parish to parish in that diocese. And those people ministered to me. I'll tell you, oh. they were so one. They understood. I cried at every homily. <laughs> I just, you know, I had come home from mass graves and hunger, and and it wasn't like I was a relief worker. Right. who went out to help people, which is hard enough. Yeah. But I was living with people mm-hmm. that I knew them. Right. And uh, all of us, church. I mean, it's not me. I was with a group, you know. But coming back here, I felt those people ministered to me. I, even when I go now to Cincinnati, I always say I have such memories of you know, this diocese. Yeah, Isn't it funny, you know, uh, that I'm remembering sweet. that today, really? Yeah. yeah. So we minister and we're ministered too, isn't it? Right, at all times, right, yeah. even, even when it's unexpected. So now that we've gotten to know you a little bit, Sister Beryl, um, I'd like to, to learn a little bit more, get a little bit more depth into um, the Medical Missionaries of Mary as a congregation. Mm-hmm. So um, can you tell mm-hmm. us uh, about the charism and maybe a little bit of the history? Uh, okay, sure, I can do that, Megan, yeah. Um, in terms of congregations, we're relatively young because we were founded in 1937. Okay, by an Irish laywoman who was working as a lay missionary in Nigeria, Marie Martin. <clears throat> we were we were founded out of God's call to her, how, how she experienced it, of the need for health care for women and children. That was that was her call, um, and she waited till 1937. That was the year that the Holy Father, at that time, gave permission for women religious to study all phases of medicine. It wasn't really considered appropriate for sisters to be doctors and midwives and all that, but that was changed, and that was the year we were founded. Because from the beginning, she wanted us to be, to combine being a sister um, with being a professional medical person. Mm. So that's how we were founded in Nigeria in 1937. We're not a large congregation. Um, We're only about we're about 300, a little more than 300 now, and we were never really large because of the specific, yes, it's so specific to health care. Mm. Um, it's a very we, narrow uh, it's, um, not, Yeah, not everyone is called calling, to yeah. be both a missionary and, yeah. and, 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 and do health care, per se. That, right. That's our reality. Mm-hmm. And we're in seven countries in, in Africa and um, in Latin America both East and West Africa, and have developed over the years. They have about 25 health projects now that range from hospitals to uh, health care centers to health-related, but it's all around healing, that's for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and the, the kind of women who, who come to MMM or any of us who come, we're independent, mm-hmm. for good or for bad. <laughs> and MMMs yeah. are workers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's because we're half of us are nurses mm-hmm. and midwives, and you're you're practical, mm-hmm. you know that kind yeah. of you know we're less academic and and less um, reflective and have to work hard on that piece. It's there, it really is there. Sure. But our nature is to get in there and work. Right. 
that's, a, that's just the kind of Start. people that most of us are. We recognize that, you know. Right. It's the personality type. That's interesting. I mean, I, I would say in a way that's that's something that I tr- would would say is true of all missionaries to a certain extent, to make something out of nothing in many cases. Yeah. You know, you're kind of dropped in a place where you get, we got all these issues, you know, see what you can do. What can you do? Um, yeah, you know, exactly. Build a school, just start a school under a tree, you know, mm-hmm. make a hospital out of a, a building and, you know, a few you know, medical devices. So, I mean, I, I can definitely see that in general, but then I think on top of it all, um, being professional, um, uh, medical care workers, you know, um, yeah, I I can see that drive, you know, let's just get started. Let's, you know, jump in and, and, um, get your hands dirty, so to speak. Um, well, the need is so evident. Yeah. Yeah. The need is there. You see, that's the thing. Healthcare is just such an obvious need, isn't it? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, you, and you mentioned. I just want to make sure this is clear too. Um, you yourself, when you first discerned, you were very young, so you wound up um, going through some medical training at school. Um, but some of the women, I, I believe, who've joined, and they're they're from all over the world yes. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, those who um, have the vocation um, have already been, you know, have medical training, and that. Then they're kind of adding this to their. Um, That's right. The community, mm-hmm. their the the um, spirituality right. some, to some their work. Some already trained, and then they do their their. They make yeah. the connection to integrate it with formation as a sister. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah I would imagine as a missionary. Yeah. That, that having that support system is key, um, just based on everything else. You know that, that, that there's such great need that sometimes it really is very very difficult. Um, to accomplish your what's needed, the goals in a certain community. But let's talk a little bit more about the sort of spirituality, the the uh, mission behind it, um, because I saw this mission statement on the M- MMM website, um, and just some few things stood out to me. So I'll just quote it here and then uh, ask a question. We are women on fire with the healing love of God, mm-hmm. engaging our our own pain and vulnerability. We go to peoples of different cultures where human need is greatest. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, all of that is amazing. But I think that the phrase in particular that stood out to me was that you engage your own pain and vulnerability. Can you tell us a little more about what that means? Yeah, I'm even, I mean, the mission statement means a lot to all of us. And first of all, let me just say this to you. It's, it's, it is aspirational. <laughs> we're not there. <laughs> right. But it is sure. something that we're trying. We Sorry. consider ourselves you know, that we're wounded healers ourselves, Mm -hmm. that we're not perfect, Mm -hmm. and that we don't go to solve anyone's problems and that we will make mistakes and that we are vulnerable ourselves and that where we meet people, I don't just meet a person as I'm your nurse, the nurse and the patient, whatever, but we meet around a certain, our own vulnerability as people. I mean, I can explain Mm -hmm. that in in one simple way is just to talk about something like language learning. Mm you're learning a language in a new country and you feel so vulnerable. And if you allow yourself to understand what that vulnerable feeling is like, then when you relate to people who have to go into a government office in that country and they feel so simple and they can't do it, you you can meet them because you know what it is like for them to feel vulnerable because you know what it is like to feel it yourself. So it's, it's, it's something about our decision to say, it's all right for people to know that we have our own pain and we're vulnerable. We don't need to be on top of it all the time or perfect or whatever. It's yeah. just, it's honest. Mm-hmm. 
No, I'm not. Again, we're not perfect. <laughs> we're right. not. Right, right, right. Don't always remember this part no, but of the mission the, statement. No, yeah. but the, it, uh, this this is important to us. Yeah. And the fact that we even refer to ourselves, we're wounded healers ourselves. We yeah. might be healers, but we're wounded ourselves, and we need it as much as we, yeah. as much as we can heal, we need to be healed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to empathy. It speaks to humanity. Um, everybody involved in the process is, is has pain and, and their own vulnerability for sure. And okay. yeah, I would say for when it comes to mission, you said language. I'd say just culture too. I think sometimes all of that can leave you being very it's, valuable. It uh, leaves you feeling so vulnerable and so Lost. unable to cope and all of that. Yeah. And then you begin to understand what the poor feel like so much of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a it's yeah. a little bit of a solidarity of yeah. I'm with you in that. So yeah. then um, the mission statement continues, I'll quote again, and then I'll ask a few more questions. Um, it says, Our own belief in the interrelatedness of God's creation urges us to embrace holistic healing and to work for reconciliation, justice, and peace. Mm-hmm. So now, first and foremost, I thought this this phrase in particular really stood out in something I think that would be very valuable for us to be reflecting on right now during this pandemic. <laughs> Holistic healing. So what does holistic healing mean uh, for medical missionaries? Well, for, for us, what it means is that the person in front of you is a whole person, body, mind, spirit. Mm-hmm. You might be looking at the body because that's your immediate job, but they're a whole person. I, I, can I give you one example? Sure. Okay, I'm just going to give one example because I know the woman, and it's, it's, it's on my mind right now. Yeah. In our mission in South Sudan is a young Ruanese woman. Uh, she's from Rwanda. Odette. She's a lovely young sister. And she told me a story she wrote. I put it in our newsletter recently, actually, because I, it was wonderful. She, um, she grew up through the genocide in Rwanda. Her family went through hell. And she had to learn a lot there. And one of the things that she learned was forgiveness. Now she's working in South Sudan in our healing center. And she's working with people, and she was helping one particular person who had mobility issues. She couldn't walk. And Part of the reason she couldn't walk was because she had raced through the bush during the war in South Sudan. She'd lost her husband and her children. The woman was alone. She was a widow. But what I'm saying to you is is Odette, out of her own experience of forgiveness, worked with this woman to help release within her the ability to forgive the people who killed her family. So on top of taking care of her hip... It was. This is what needed to happen. So I, yeah. I, I mean, to me, that that's a simple story, really. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just one that um, that for me helps me relate to the person in front of you mm-hmm. has healing that has to happen, which may not even be physical. That may not be the least of what they need. Right. It. I could give you a million stories about that. The care of caregivers. All the home care that we're doing, the example in Honduras, we do a lot of home care. Mm. Um, and when, when we were doing it, we realized that the people who really needed caring as well was the people doing the caring in the families, the mothers, the mm-hmm. sisters. And mm-hmm. so we began a program where bringing them together mm-hmm. so that they could sit and talk about what it's like. We get so many young people back to Honduras who've been deported from the States and mm. uh, they're in not great shape. Some of them have had factory accidents or whatever. Mm. There's a lot of serious illness and problems in those who are confined to their homes, mm. and their caregivers are exhausted. Right. So now the caregivers come together to give support to one another. So it was in doing home care that the physical needs are mm. important. Yeah. They are. Right. 
but the needs of these caregivers to be honored, cherished, mm -hmm. respected, mm -hmm. that had to be. So that's like the holistic piece of oh. it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, like you said, um, I would imagine that oftentimes the physical ailments are connected to some kind of emotional or spiritual harm, like you said, either been through a war or mm -hmm. a person has um, dealing with the struggle of poverty or, or um, a mistreatment by uh, systems, uh, institutions, you know, immigration or whatever the case, um, that that are bigger than just that, that physical yeah. ailment right there. But it it's deeper and it's it's part of that, yeah, the whole person, like you said. Yeah, um, yeah, and then it's a conscious decision for any group who's working on a project to say, how do we meet this need? Yeah. You know, we started a clinic, okay, that's good, but it's just not enough. Well, I'm sure that you see, you start with the physical and then things start to, to that's right. grow as you see, okay, there's a deeper need here. Or there's, there's a deeper a, need here. It could be um, pollution. It could, you know, as yeah. we have a lot of asthma in our place yeah. in, Hond on, on Honduras, yes. San Pedro Sula. So we had to deal with the pollution issue. How do we do that? How do we clean up the neighborhood? You know, so yeah. it, it just holistic healing means you just don't stop with the physical, but you look deeper. Sure. Yeah. You look deeper. Yep, yep, yep. But I also want to just make sure we make that connection with, um, at the end of that mission statement, create the mention of interconnectedness with creation, reconciliation, justice, and peace. Um, we didn't, we ran out of time there in the last segment, but I just want to make that connection too. If you could speak about the interconnectedness. Okay. Um, again, examples are probably the most helpful for that. The, the, um, are connected to creation. So in other words, that sense of, of our involvement with creation. And I can bring that back to is when you're working in a place I can take us to a place in Nigeria now that we're only in for five years where there's huge issues with water. Mm. So the slow sitting down with people in the local villages and talking about water and what can we do, clean water, how do we do that, and eventually leading to solar power and water tanks and all of that. But the process was a slow, the importance of water, of clean water, that, that, that kind of that kind of thing. And the, the thing would be in Hond and uh, another example would be in Honduras is that <clears throat> beautiful country, but it's so polluted. Yeah. And um, the efforts to, to honor the beauty of a neighborhood by cleaning it up, mm -hmm. by planting flowers, by simple little things mm -hmm. that honor the beauty Mm -hmm. of of creation i i mm -hmm. you know you could go on about this but all it, I, I suppose what it is is and we're only learning to do this ourselves because you could get caught in the moment of just taking care of the hospital or the clinic mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you're realizing no if we have a clinic let us put trees and flowers around it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that people see something yeah. but you know that 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 that's kind of thing the justice and peace <clears throat> We often are in war places, mm -hmm. so that that understanding of how of of um, justice and peace is a like the human trafficking is a big issue that we're working on now, yes. specifically in East Africa and here in the states, and and an advocacy kind of way. Mm -hmm. That is a, a a justice issue that's really important for us because of the women and children. That's our first commitment. We close today's program with an important reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, artschicago.org. That's artschicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. 
Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., and Polevision for televising our Polish language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.